Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the program. Today, the hedgehog and the fox are examining typography. And that, as I expect you know already... It's about much more than just picking fonts. Typography is a lot more than fonts. Fonts are the clothes, the dress, but there's also the need to consider the structure of the document, whether that's a printed document or whether it's on a screen or whether it's on a mobile device. The way that typography works with the language that's there is is absolutely symbiotic. The, The way that you make something look is intimately connected with what the message is. My guest today is Paul Luna, who's the author of a recent book on typography in the Very Short Introduction series from Oxford University Press. Paul is also Emeritus Professor of Typography and Graphic Communication at the University of Reading. And, full disclosure, Paul and I were colleagues at OUP in the 1990s, where he headed the design department in the academic division, and I was a commissioning editor. Paul has been responsible for the typographic design of a host of major publications, including editions of the Bible and Shakespeare, and reference works, including the two most recent editions of the Shorter Oxford English Dictionary. Paul's university webpage sums up his main area of professional interest as the design of complex text, especially dictionaries, in both paper and electronic formats. Despite knowing Paul for years, I had never asked him about his family origins. I did so just before our interview and couldn't have hoped for a better answer. Paul's family are from Ivrea in Piedmont, northwest Italy, the company town that was home to the famous Olivetti typewriter works. Icons of design. Black text on a white page. I think there must have been something in the water, or some genetic inheritance at work. Paul didn't grow up among the glass and steel structures of Camillo Olivetti's factories, though, but in South London. So when I visited him at home in Oxfordshire in November, I began by asking him when he had first taken an interest in type. Well, when I was a schoolboy, when I was young, I was absolutely fascinated with buses and tube trains. Lived in South London, my family didn't have a car, so we travelled on buses and on the tube up to town all the time. And I realised that the buses had the names of places on the front and that tube trains had these kind of diagrammatic maps of all the stations and I somehow began to connect with these and I I still remember making tiny little 
paper destination boards for my little toy dinky buses, which I would I would carefully glue onto the fronts of them and try to do the lettering as carefully as I could, about a millimetre high. Then I was lucky enough to go to a school which actually had a little printing shop. We had a couple of uh, late 19th century platen presses, which in those days, because there was much less control over what what pupils did, we were actually allowed to work ourselves. So we could set type and we could print things. And I'm afraid we, we printed rather ribald broadsides about members of the staff and got told off rather sternly for this. But beautifully printed. Uh, well, quite well printed. <laughs> yes, I think, I think the quality of the print was probably better than the quality of the emotions expressed within them. And you decided then you wanted to go on and, and study this seriously? Yes, I did. And I was lucky enough when I was at school to have, uh, there was a friend of the family who worked for London Transport and worked at the Chiswick Works. And she said, why doesn't Paul apply for a holiday job with the publicity department in, in London? Because it'll bring together things that he's he's interested in. So I, I dutifully did. And it was quite amazing. I was actually taken on for a two, three month period over, over the summer when I was when I was in the fifth form. And this was an absolute revelation to me. And partly it was a revelation of history and archives, because the first thing I was shown were the folders, the photographic records of every poster that the underground and the bus companies in London had produced from 1919. So this this set and I was just told just 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 get into the way we do things and this was quite extraordinary I actually felt that at the end of this process and spending a day looking through these folders that I was somehow right at the end of a long tradition and whatever I was asked to do which I didn't know what it was going to be at that point was somehow balancing and built on all this work that had been done for decades before and I was very lucky the people I worked for were constantly encouraging me and saying, here's something that we've got to do. We've got to do some maps for Windsor. Go off to Windsor, look at the streets, draw the sketch and come back and then produce the artwork for the map. And I, I dutifully did this, had a lovely day in Windsor, drew all the streets on my sketch pad, came back, worked out where all the bus stops were and which bus went from which bus stop. Came back, produced the most god-awful piece of artwork you've ever seen. It was just impossible. It was like all bits of glue and tape and paint and it was horrible but the head of the studio just sort of was really kind to me and sort of explained that no you can't just keep sticking corrections on top of things you just have to start again and do it neat and I gradually began to understand how you actually construct what was in those days those pre-digital days a piece of handmade artwork so you could reproduce a map from it. And I'm guessing it was more exciting to begin a career in typography in that way, really seeing something that had an immediate direct impact in the real world where you could sort of see the type cutting through the noise rather than perhaps opening some old books in the library. That, that wouldn't have set the, set the fires blazing, would it? No, I don't think I really, I didn't really connect with sort of typographic history at that point. What I wanted to do was, was, was the here and now. I do remember the the first time it had gone through many iterations after I proposed it, but I proposed a, a, a side of the bus poster campaign for some aspect of selling discounted tickets. 
and it was taken up. And I just remember being so chuffed when I saw the first big London double-decker bus with my poster along the side of it. Um, and I just thought, gosh, this is this is what you want to do. Have, have your stuff out there being seen by everybody. Do you still get a sort of thrill of excitement when you see work, either that you've produced yourself or that some other typographer has produced? Do you, does, does it still make you sort of excited when you see someone solving a problem or coming up with something that seems fresh and new and to do what it's supposed to do? I do. I mean, I, I, it's still great to see something that you've done that's actually worked and has been successful or, or indeed has simply lasted. It's been very gratifying that the work, a lot of the work that I did at OUP has, has had a continuing legacy and is still, still being used in many respects. But when you see the result of careful decision-making in typography, I was looking at the, B, the new BBC Sounds app and I know there's been a lot of criticism of the interface and how it works and, and what you can do with it. And I agree with many of those points. But there's one thing where it's a huge improvement over the previous BBC iPlayer app, and that is in the typography. They've used a custom typeface, which the BBC calls Wreath. It's really been designed to work at small sizes on the screens of mobile devices, particularly phones. And it is so much clearer than the previous version of the app. So whatever little quibbles there are about the functionality, at one level, they've certainly produced something that's really a whole lot clearer and easier for the reader to engage with. You mentioned that early map you produced at Windsor where it was a bit of a mess of, of thing being stuck on. Of course, nowadays, working on computers, it's possible for things to have a veneer of finish. Do you think people designers and typographers are suffering if they start in computers and don't have that direct, hands-on kind of making experience? I think there is a loss if you've lived in an entirely digital world and you haven't had the joy and the pleasure of making something that is precise and neat and functions with your bare hands, as it were. A lot of the craft of being a typographer or any kind of, of graphic designer, even 30 years ago, was to be a steady hand with a scalpel and to be able to cut and fold paper and to work with paints, with inks, and to know exactly what you were doing. And the feedback was immediate. You have to set up systems now if you're working digitally, if you're working in a digital workflow and you're seeing everything on screen, you have to force yourself to see things going to be printed rather than appear on screens. You have to force yourself to be to see, to get the printer to produce a proper colour proof so that you can approve it and check. And in a way, not so much check that they're doing the right thing, but that you were doing the right thing and that you were setting the thing up to work properly when it translates from the medium of the screen to the medium of the printed page. When you meet someone for the first time and you tell them what you do, do you have a, a shorthand description of what typography is? Because I think everybody thinks they're a little bit of a typographer now because they can choose the font on, on Word. Well, I s almost always duck out of it by avoiding the T word initially. And I usually say something like, I'm a book designer or I'm a graphic designer. And then 
if there's a further question, um, <laughs> having moved on, <laughs> if there's a further question, I can say, well, actually, it's the typography of the thing that I'm really interested in, the way the way the words fit the language that's being used and the way that the words work to create the correct atmosphere or the correct information in the document that you're looking at. So a lot more to it than simply choosing Arial over Helvetica or whatever. I love the fact that so many people are obsessed with fonts. I was, I still am obsessed with fonts. I was the font spotter on my university course. I was the student that everybody came to and said, Paul, what's this typeface? So I do absolutely get that. But typography is a lot more than fonts. Fonts are the clothes, the dress, but there's also the need to consider the structure of the document, whether that's a printed document or whether it's on a screen or whether it's on a mobile device. The way that typography works with the language that's there is, is absolutely symbiotic. The, the way that you make something look is intimately, intimately connected with what the message is and the, what those words say. You can't really separate the two. And simply thinking of it as a font choice, while that's a very important aspect, kind of just reduces, I think, the scope that you've got for getting a message to really function for its audience. So what are some of the first questions that a typographer asks before they start doing any of the, the detailed nitty-gritty design work? You, you've talked about understanding the, the structure and the function of a piece of, of text. I think I'd probably want to know who the reader is and what they're going to do with this. Are they going to see it for a fraction of a second as they pass by it on a motorway? Are they going to engage with it over a long period as they read a book in their armchair at home? Are they going to be looking at this on a, on a mobile device? And are there going to be other distractions around them? And it really needs to draw them in. Yes, the reader is absolutely key and understanding the reader's needs are key. What's the author trying to do how is he trying to communicate is this something that should be taken at its face value if you're designing a newspaper or a book yes what the author says is what they really mean if you're working with a visual artist who may want to play games with the publication who may want to lead the reader maybe a little bit astray or tease them about what it is that they're reading and why they're engaging with it, then you may want to do the same thing and play games with the audience and present them with maybe things that are, are slightly odd or opaque or perhaps even illegible because you're, you're trying to get them to think in a different way about the kind of writing they're looking at. But would it be fair as a generalisation to say that most of the time if the typographer has done his or her work well you won't even be conscious that they've been there. Oh, that's such a difficult one. What you've described is this principle called the crystal goblet. Typography is a clear vessel through which you absolutely see the object, the, the text, has a problem. Whatever you do intervenes between the writer and the reader. You have to decide what genre you're working. You have to decide whether this is going to be 
a newspaper, a book, a monograph, an illustrated book, a website or whatever. These genres have very, very strong conventions as to what's appropriate in terms of their look and the feel. They also have very strong conventions in things like how long a piece of writing is. You know, a piece of writing for a website tends to be snappier than it is if you've got a, a long extended bit of reading of a, of a piece of print. So working with those genres makes you realise that you simply have to put a particular form on a piece of writing so that the reader can understand it. And that's where I think the crystal goblet analogy slightly falls apart because that form is an, is an imposed, agreed, conventional form which you're working with. And that's not really quite the same thing as, as a transparent form. Let's take an example of The Guardian's recent redesign. Now, when it came out at first, I had a, a really strong negative reaction to it. And there were lots of, I could have listed things I didn't like, like the use of yellow highlighting and those rather primary colours and cutouts and so on. Now, I don't know whether I've got used to it or if they've made some tweaks, or I suspect a bit of both, but I've, it has now become The Guardian again. So is that a sort of example of something which is quite familiar in typography, where any novelty is sort of resisted because it is is new, it takes a while to bed in, and then it then it becomes almost to, to perhaps not to the designer, but to the to the consumer, it becomes a bit more a bit more like your crystal goblet. That's absolutely true. The Guardian, in particular, has changed. The design team said at the relaunch that the relaunch was the start of a process and not the end of a process. And newspapers are particularly interesting typographic object it has to both be the same every day so that you're familiar with it and that you recognize it as being the guardian or the new york times or the washington post but it has to contain different material every day so what you're designing is in many ways a kit of parts that can respond dynamically to different content newspaper design in this way prefigures a lot of the way that web design is planned because you have again to consider what's likely to be poured into the screen in a way that so that the design can respond to the content appropriately but newspapers aren't the only place where this happens if you look at the work that henry c beck did on the london underground diagram he designed that in the 1930s he was designing that for the next 30 years there was a new version, maybe slightly more, maybe slightly less, maybe coping with maybe a new station or the closure of a station or a new line over that entire period. So I think that design is very, very rarely something that's static. If you were to say, oh, you know the London Underground diagram as an example of graphic design, almost everybody would say, yes, of course. They probably wouldn't be able to identify which particular edition from which particular year embodied the core of that design because it's something that's been carefully designed and redesigned over over the intervening years. I was really fascinated you mentioned the book a Dutch newspaper which used a sans serif typeface for a dozen years and in the end 
dropped it and went back to serif. Now, clearly the habituation that we were talking about there just didn't work with the punters. There was clearly something, there was some mismatch in the perception of the reader between what they felt the newspaper should embody and what that sans-serif typeface was doing. So there, there were sort of embedded cultural assumptions and values in certain design choices that that, that, that that Dutch paper just couldn't overcome. I think that's true. The newspaper, which I think was called Trau, not only set its stories, the, the text of the stories in a sans-serif typeface, if I remember rightly, it had a quite a sort of open, flat, grey look to it, which meant that it, it looked quite different from the punchier, much more contrasty pages. Now, are you using grey in a metaphorical typographer sense rather than a, a literal Pantone sense? No, I think it just did look grey. Um, no, I think it, it, it did look grey. I suspect that it also suffered from a lack of precision. We forget, because newspapers are so precisely typeset and printed in four colours now, so you get full colour images, how it wasn't that long ago when newspapers were printed rather muddily by rotary letterpress, which was a quite obsolescent process, and where the detail of typography was very rarely carried out with any sense of finesse. And I suspect there was also a a mismatch in that design between what would have looked really good and what would have been very legible and what actually landed on the page day after day after day. It's an interesting one. It was prefigured about 30 years before when The Observer started setting some of its feature articles unjustified. In other words, it didn't line up the right-hand edge of the columns. It just let the lines fall as they wanted. And this provoked quite a positive reader response, or quite a negative reader response, because they didn't they didn't like columnists like Catherine Whitehorn being typeset in blank verse, I think, is the is is is, is was one of the criticisms. Now, of course, half of practically all newspapers are set unjustified, and nobody nobody notices at all. It's just part of the norm. I suspect a lot of that is because when you type an email, when you do something in Word, the default state is that the right-hand margin is ragged and that people have adopted this as being as being normal. There is a case that what you're used to is what you respond to best and find find comfortable. It doesn't mean you should always stay with what was done in previous decades or previous centuries. You do quite often have to rethink things for the here and now. And of course, the the, the big revolution that you've alluded to already is not ragged right-hand margins, but it's the shift from print to digital, to screen-based reading. And if you think about the newspaper designer working on on a spread and you know, for the print edition, what a a huge change it is to be then thinking about what is going to happen on a smartphone or a tablet or a desktop or a laptop with ads fired in at some regular or irregular interval as as, um, prescribed by the the advertising department. It's a massive revolution, isn't it? Not just in how how we're reading, but in how designers have to think about how their work is, um, is being perceived. Yes, Design has always been about specification, that is, 
telling somebody, used to be a hand compositor, used to be a, a letterpress printer, what something should look like. And you, you tell them this by giving them a lot of, of physical parameters. You say the sizes should be this, the, the arrangements should be like that. You can do this, you, you can't do that. This will define what the design is. So when I came into the industry, everything was done by specification. Designers simply designed. We could not, we were not in a position either technologically or in relation to union rules to actually do any typesetting or do any printing ourselves. That made us quite adept, I think, at thinking forward, trying to figure out what the problems were likely to be that the compositor or the printer would encounter when they actually had to deal with the job. But it also meant that you could rely on a whole range of, of craft knowledge downstream of what you were doing. I don't think when I, the first 10 years I was a designer, a book designer, I ever told a printer how much space to use between words. It just simply wasn't necessary. They never got it wrong. That was, that was a shared body of craft knowledge. Exactly, exactly. And it was a shared, and it was also a tacit body of knowledge because there were very few places you could go to to find out what these parameters, what these judgments actually were. There was a tiny little appendix at the back of Hart's Rules called Composition and Makeup Instructions, and that embodied some of them, but that only embodied the instructions that one particular printer, Oxford, used for its books. So it was hardly a general description of, of, of knowledge. When we started typesetting books in the Far East, when we started typesetting books on IBM typewriters, when, most of all, authors started coming to us and saying, I can actually typeset this book on my own word processor, then we had to rethink the way that we were describing what we were doing. We had to take out the assumption that people downstream knew what they were doing and we had to start producing very, very precise specifications. And this almost exactly coincided with the introduction of desktop computers, first of all with the Mac and then with other, other machines, which allowed us to actually get involved hands-on on the act of typesetting. Now, of course, it's swung completely the other way. I spend most of my time trying to avoid doing typesetting if I possibly can. And if I use an application like InDesign, I'm using scripts, I'm using plugins, which will automate the typesetting process because much though you may respect the cross people of the past who did this, it's terribly tedious actually typesetting and working your way through an entire manuscript and making sure that everything's styled up right manually. Those changes, I think, have been the fundamental ones that I've seen, where we used to start with specification. Now we just think about specification in a quite different way. Would it be a fair representation of your view to say that that tacit craft knowledge actually did quite well for the value of legibility? And legibility until quite recently hasn't been particularly scientifically studied. It's only really beginning now to come to the fore as something where, you know, I, I started reading your book think, with certain preconceptions about the legibility of serif versus sans serifs. 
And it turns out that's just that's just folk wisdom that's not actually borne out by research. Yes, I think that craft knowledge carried people an awful long way. I've got two books in front of me, one of which is a tiny little miniature edition of a Charles Dickens novel. It's a less than two inches high. The other is a history of the Times newspaper, and it is ten times the size of the Charles Dickens novel. Uh, so you can imagine two objects which are at an extreme end of a, of a typographic scale. Ten times, that's the difference in the height of the pages. But if you look at the type within them and you look at the important measurement of the type, which is the X height, that is the main channel of, of, of what you read, the, the height of letters X, A and S in lowercase, you'll see that the Charles Dickens, the type there is, has an X height of one millimetre. In the history of the times, the type has an X height of three millimetres. So although the page size has a ratio of one to ten, what the typesetters have done is made the ratio of the type that you read only one to three. In other words, the smaller book is not as small as it would be if it was a photographic reduction of the big one, and the big one isn't as big as it would be if it was a photographic enlargement of the small one. And, wh and when do those date from, and do they then therefore represent this tacit craft knowledge? The Charles Dickens, I think, dates from the first decade of the 20th century. It was actually printed in Oxford, the history of the times comes from the 1950s and it was designed by the British typographer Stanley Morrison who designed Times New Roman. It's actually set in a very, very large size of Times New Roman and it's a very impressive volume. What these two little books demonstrate is a feature called optical scaling. That is the way that you adjust the proportions of letters so that they become larger and stronger and more open in smaller sizes and they can become more refined, slightly more narrow and sharper in larger sizes. A lot of this was lost in the technologies that were prevalent in the 60s, 70s and 80s because in that period type was produced by exposing light through a photographic negative an image of a letter and projecting that image onto photographic paper or film, which was then printed from. That meant you had a linear relationship of sizes. Type that was twice as big was literally type twice as big. With digital type, we've now got back to a, a system whereby we can make smaller type more open, stronger, and more easily legible at small sizes, and yet keep larger type in books, newspapers and magazines, finer, more precise. You can see this difference if you look at the difference between a headline typeface in a magazine and the text typeface in a magazine. So for much of the history of, um, of publishing, it's been, a, it's been pretty much a matter of one size fits all. You, take, you, you make one design, you put it out into the world, that's pretty much what the reader has to respond to. With computers, with responsive design, with greater flexibility, designers in the last 10 years have 
been able to begin to think about inclusivity in the design. So what, what sort of new considerations are they now going through when they, when they sit down to design something? I think this is really interesting. When I was a student, there was discussion about legibility and making things work for readers. But there was no discussion of what we now think of as accessibility or inclusivity. There was very little discussion of how you would design something for somebody who was sight impaired or had problems with printing in a normal sized book. Now that's actually on the agenda. It's on the curriculum on design courses and I think that's absolutely great because I mean after all there is a statutory requirement on us to make our communications legible and accessible to as wide a range of the population as possible. There's been some really interesting work done by psychologists who are working with typographers on what helps for example people with dyslexia to read. There's a lot of froth out there about topics like this because individual individual designers, individual publishers have latched on to particular aspects of a particular typeface maybe and, and decided that that is the answer. In fact, with many of these things, there are, there are a myriad or there's a spectrum of issues that need to be addressed and, and particular solutions work well for particular circumstances. For example, one thing that's recently been established is that opening up the space between letters is quite often helpful for certain sorts of dyslexic reader. It's never a good idea to tighten up the space between letters, or it's almost never a good idea to tighten up the space between letters or to make them unnecessarily narrow. It's quite often a good idea to open them up and space them a little. You have to be very careful with this because this is a very good guideline for a particular kind of reader. We're also very aware that if we offer a different typographic solution for one subset of our readers, maybe people have problems with dyslexia, are we perhaps declaring them to be different kinds of reader from the mainstream or from the rest of the audience? This is something which does not have an easy answer. And I think this is a fruitful area actually for, for, for design students to get into and to learn something about this. I've been fascinated working with students on a module that, that introduced some of these ideas where they began by using either spectacles which impaired their vision or by using little wooden stents on their hands which made their uh, manoeuvrability more similar to, for example, the, that of somebody with arthritis, where they began to understand what the problems were with seeing and reading and handling some of the things that they had designed. And I think that's such an important aspect of design education. We really should, we really should get behind that. I was talking to Paul Luna about typography, a very short introduction. It was recently published by Oxford University Press and is available in paperback. You can find out more about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. 
You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. This is the last Hedgehog and Fox programme of 2018. So until we return in mid-January, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.